remember the last time that you weren't worried? Do you remember the last time that you weren't anxious about something? Do you remember the last time that you didn't lie awake at night with your heart racing and, and frantic? Do you remember the last time that you weren't fearful of how tomorrow would be? The last time that you didn't have a knot in your stomach or, or trembling hands? This season... The Christmas season is especially a time that we're prone to be anxious, a time that we're prone to worry. This is a time when all the families come together, and as beautiful as that usually is, in some cases, oftentimes, it's actually stressful for us, isn't it? It's stressful because we know as everyone comes together that maybe not everyone gets, to, gets along the way that we would desire for them to get along. And, and sometimes we even feel the, the weight of being the mediator between different sides of the family where there's conflict and where there's tension. And so you gather around your dining room table or you gather in your living room to open gifts. And rather than sing, feeling like there's joy and, and relief, you feel tension and anxiety and worry. And over the whole course of this month, that's all you've been able to think about. Perhaps ever since Thanksgiving, that's all you've been able to think about. For some of you, this time is a, a season in which you don't remember what you have been given. Rather, you remember what you have lost. Perhaps this is the first Christmas that you've had without um, your father or your mother or your grandparent or your husband. You've lost someone that you dearly love over the course of this last year. And so now as you, as you gather around the table, there will be a noticeable loss. Maybe there's been a divorce in your family this year, or your, your marriage crumbled, or that of your family's crumbled. And so there will be that loss. There's the, the broken Christmas traditions that you've always had, those things that you've always done. And you worry. And you're anxious. Maybe you're the matriarch or the patriarch of your family, and so you feel the responsibility to step up and make sure that everyone has a great time, to make sure that everyone has something to eat that they like to eat, to make sure that everyone receives a gift that they want and that will be a blessing to them. And so you have worked yourself up into such a tizzy that you, you really can't even enjoy it. You just worry. My prayer this morning has been that the Lord would use this text to dismantle that worry in your life. To dismantle that anxiety in your life. It's not a quick fix. That's not what I'm, I'm even proposing. But rather it is, it is us getting to the root of our worry. It's us cutting, cutting through all of the layers. Cutting through all of the symptoms of our worry. And getting to the heart of it. So this morning would you stand with me. As we finish chapter 6 of Matthew. Together. We will start in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me tell you where I want to land this morning. I want to land in verse 34. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't verse 34 sound good? Verse 34 says, therefore, do not be anxious, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's where I want us to get to. And I think that's what Jesus is building to throughout, throughout this whole passage, starting in verse 25, so that we can come to tomorrow and not be anxious about it. Now he begins in verse 25 by saying, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And I think in and of itself, that is a powerful verse. When Jesus, the Son of Man, looks at us, the Son of God looks at us, and he says to his disciples, says to us this morning, do not be anxious, my children. Do not be anxious, my followers. Do not be anxious, my disciples. That says something significant. Think about what that means. Jesus would not command us to do something if he didn't care about it. See, I think sometimes we have this understanding of Jesus that that Jesus is really passionate about us not going to hell, that Jesus is really all in on the forgiveness of our sins, that Jesus is really all in on us being pardoned from the penalty of our sin, and by the way, he certainly is. But that somehow Jesus is distant, or Jesus is cold, or Jesus is indifferent toward our daily lives, and our daily struggles, and our daily difficulties, and our daily worries. But we see this morning that's not the case. That our Savior is just more sufficient than that. That our Savior is just more glorious than that. That our Savior is just more personal, more loving, more caring than that. See, what we see this morning is that Jesus cares about your life. He doesn't just care about where you're going to be forever. He cares about where you are right now. He cares about how you're struggling right now. He cares about how your heart races and your stomach knots. He cares about how shaky your hands get. He cares about how sleepless your nights are. He cares about the worries that are in your life. If it weren't so, he wouldn't say anything about it. If it weren't so, he wouldn't address it. But we see him addressing it here not because not only does he care about it, he knows it's coming. He knows it's coming. Imagine where the men that he was talking to this day, the the disciples, those that eventually would face death on his behalf, those that would be persecuted on his behalf, to us those who would be persecuted on his behalf. He knows we're going to face this. He knows that anxiety is going to be a struggle for us. He knows that we're going to struggle with worry. And so he looks at us with the eyes of a loving Savior and says, my children, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. And flowing out of that, flowing out of his love for us, flowing out of his passion for us, flowing out of his concern for our daily lives, flowing out of his concern for where we are right now, he begins to unpack this this very powerful argument as to why we should not be anxious, attempting to dismantle the anxiety in our lives. The first, he starts very broad as he begins in verse 
26, or I'm sorry, in verse 25, he says, Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? As Jesus is drilling down into this, and as Jesus is moving, through, move, moving us through his argument, the way he sets all of this up is with one of the most fundamental questions of life. It's a question so profound that the greatest thinkers and the greatest philosophers have, have thought about it and reflected upon it and written about it since the earliest days that we have recorded. And it's this. Is there more to life than merely living? Is there more to life than merely living? Is there more to life than merely getting through today and making sure I'm there tomorrow? Is there more to life than merely surviving the longest number of days that I'm capable of surviving? Is there something deeper? One of the desires that all people have, one of the needs that every person has, is to know that there is more to life than what we see because we all know that what we see is very broken. What we see is very difficult. What we see is, is almost overwhelming in the sense that we, just, we have to believe that there's more than just this. We have to believe that there's more than just this destruction that we see in our families, than this difficulty that we find in our lives, than this, this daily grind that just exhausts us. And so Jesus looks at us as he looks at his disciples and he says, is there not more than this? Is there not more than this? Is there not more than just the food that we eat and the clothes that we wear? Is there not more than just merely living in this life? And he's asking his disciples as those who already know the answer to the question. He's asking those of us who are in Christ this morning that already know the answer to the question. We already know, yes, there is more than this. Yes, there is purpose in life. Yes, we have a reason for living. Yes, we have a reason for existing. It's more than food. It's more than clothing. See, this is a significant question because it not only determines our anxiety, it not only determines our worry, it determines everything else about the way that we live. The only way there can be more to life than merely living is if there is a, a, an author of life somewhere that applies meaning to this life. Because all of us know it's not the, the letters that mean anything, it's the author or the speaker who speaks them, isn't it? And if this life, if we think of this life in the context of letters or in the context of words which we know, by the way, was created by the speaking of God's word. We know that there must be an author of those words. If there is deeper meaning, and that means that if we are to find its deeper meaning, we must find it in the author, in the intent of the author, in the will of the author of life, which is God himself. And so Jesus starts us off by saying, is there not more than this? And as your hearts race, and as your stomach's not, as you begin to doubt the, the purposes of the author of life, as you begin to, to doubt the concern of the author of life, the goodness of the author of life, he says, just stop and look around. Stop and look around. Look first to the birds of the air. Look at the birds. Look, look at how full they appear to be. L listen to them sing. Do you hear how, how happy they appear to be? Is there anything that embodies happiness more to us than singing birds? If you don't believe me, just turn on, a Disney, on the Disney Channel. The Disney Channel's big at my house right now. And every Cinderella movie and every Snow White movie, every fairy tale has what? It has birds singing and chirping as everything ends happily ever after, right? Because we hear the birds singing and we immediately think, man, isn't that pleasant? Isn't that happy? Isn't that joyful? 
And so Jesus, perhaps even in that moment, hearing the birds as they, as they uh, flew around, as he's preaching this great sermon outdoors, perhaps says, look, do you see the bird? Do, do you hear the bird as it's chirping? Do you hear the bird as it's singing? Does it look like it's wanting? Does it look like it's worried about tomorrow? Does it look like it's concerned about what's happening? Well, who fed the bird? Who, who gives the bird everything that it needs? Who gives the bird a place to sleep? Who gives the bird food to eat? Who supplies what the, the needs and the provisions to the bird? And this is important. You'll blow through this if you read the text too carefully. Look, who does he say? He says, Is not life more than clothing and the body more than clothing? Uh, life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet, who feeds them? Your heavenly Father feeds them. Notice how Jesus says that. It's remarkable. Jesus doesn't say it the way I would probably say it. The way I would say it is the heavenly father feeds them. I would, it would be this generic term, this way that we, we refer to him so often. He doesn't, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't say look at the birds and notice how the heavenly father feeds them. No, what does he say? He says it's your heavenly father that feeds them. The one that, that gives the birds their song, it's your heavenly father. The one that looks after their needs, it's your heavenly father. Your father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they are? See, he's driving home something right here. He's reminding us of, of who it is that we're talking about, of who it is that's in control of all of this stuff in life. And it's not just some abstract God. It's not just some powerful deity even. It's not just some, some distant author of life. No, it's your, your heavenly Father, the one that loves you deeply and intimately and richly, the one that, that loved you before the foundations of the earth even, the one that has adopted you, the one that has, has promised to allow you to share in his joy and enjoy his riches forever, for 10 million years, and t after that, and after that, and after that. It's your heavenly father. You know, my dad, most, a lot of you know him, pretty good guy. Most of y'all probably like him, and, and, you know, I'm pretty sure he likes most of y'all too. But not the way he likes me. Not the way he likes me. You see, he's not filling your call at 10 o'clock on a work night to talk about a puking toddler. But he does mine. Well, this week. He's not coming over on his off day, on his Saturday, to work all day on your water heater. But he does mine. He does mine. Why? Because he's my dad. He's my heavenly father. And he cares about me. And he cares about what happens to me. Even the mundane parts of my life. Even the puking toddler moments of my life. Even the cold water moments of my life. My dad cares about those. Your heavenly father, he loves all of his creation. He loves all of the things that you see. He's designed all of them to, to eloquently preach and sing his glory to all of the cosmos but guess what brothers and sisters he especially loves you he especially loves you 
And he cares not just about the the grand parts of your life, not just about the the big picture of your life. He cares about the puking toddler moments of your life. He cares about the mundane moments of your life. He cares about the daily struggles of your life. Your heavenly father loves you. If he takes care of a nameless bird on a power line, how much better will he take care of you? Do not be anxious, brothers and sisters. He says, what? And you look around and don't, don't just see the birds. Look and, and see the lilies. See the lilies in the, in, the, in the valley. Very likely they were there right where Jesus stands. And, and he points out and he says, look at them. Have you ever seen a man that can build anything so beautiful? Have you ever seen a man that could paint a picture that is so exquisite? Have you ever seen anything that could, could be described quite like this? It says, he even uses the term, this is his, there is more beautiful than Solomon in his splendor. In 1 Kings, it tells us that Solomon was one time seen by a woman in his splendor and that she could no longer breathe. It took his breath, her breath away from her. And Jesus says, look at the lilies. Aren't they even better than that? Aren't they even better than that? Aren't they even more beautiful than that? And yet, tomorrow, they're going to be burned up. Are they ulcerated? Do they struggle with the shingles? Do their eyes look droopy? Do they appear neglected? Do they appear withered? No. They're clothed by the Father. They don't toil, they don't spin, they don't frantically go about trying to hope that tomorrow there's enough rain or the next day there's enough sun. No, they just live, they just are, taking in the provision of the Father, taking in the goodness of the Father, and then displaying it for all of us to appreciate and to see. And notice he changes the terminology here, right? He goes from talking about your Father to talking about God. He says, consider the lilies of the field, how they, clothe, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? So he's, so he's went from this, this very personal picture of our dad in heaven to this picture of, but your dad is God. Your father is God. Your father reigns on the throne of heaven. Your father reigns on the throne of the cosmos. Your father loves your life and cares about you, but remember, brothers and sisters, who your father is. He is the ruler, the king of the universe. And he already knows what you need. And he already knows what you need. Have you ever considered what it means that your father is God? Have you ever stopped to consider what that means? Have you ever stopped to consider what it means that that your dad is the king? You see, one of the privileges of being a son or daughter of the king is that you don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to worry about where your next meal is coming from because your dad is the king. If anybody gets fed, it's his family. You don't have to worry about if your your needs are going to be met. Your dad is the king. Your father is the king. How much more so is the truth for us? How much more so is the truth for us? We worry anxiously about tomorrow, but guess what? He's already there. Our father is already there. 
We worry about how we're going to have enough money. We worry about how we're going to be able to to pay our bills, how we're going to be able to, to meet all of our needs. Have we forgotten that our Father has riches that we will explore forever and never find the end of? We worry about the difficulties of life and the sadnesses of life and the defeats of life. And they beat us down into submission. Have we forgotten that our Father has made us more than a conqueror in Christ? And though we may have temporary difficulties and temporary sadnesses in this life, we will rejoice in heaven with Him forever. This is what it means for your dad to be the king. When your dad is the king, your heart can rest. Your mind can be at ease. So don't be anxious. Don't be anxious, brothers and sisters. Don't be anxious, children of God. Don't be anxious because your dad is the king. Your father is God. Jesus has been, so far, the argument has been what? The argument has been your anxiety is unnecessary. Your anxiety is unnecessary. Your your father is in control of all of this. Your father cares about you. There's more to all of this, and you are more valuable than all of this, and you are cared for, and you are supplied for. Your father is all in on this. It's unnecessary for you to worry. It's unnecessary for you to be concerned. Then what does he say? Kind of sandwiched in between the the conversation about the birds and and the lilies, what does he say? Not only is it unnecessary, it's ineffective anyway. Ineffective anyway. What does he say? He says, can you add one day to your life? Can you add one minute to your life? Can you add one hour to your life by worrying? By being anxious? In other words, is this even going to help? Is it, does, it, does it help anything for you to live continually afraid? Does it, does it help anyway for you to, to be perpetually defeated? Does it, does it help anyway for you to have a, a heart that's always frantic and a heart that's always racing? Now the obvious answer that all of us know is no, it doesn't help. As a matter of fact, every pit of medical and scientific research that we can have says that not only does stress not help, it actually shortens the days of your life. So it's clear to us that it's unnecessary. And Jesus, by just asking that question, is is, is cutting us to the heart. And he's reminding us, in the daily stresses of life, in the daily struggles of life, we see our neediness, we see our weakness, and we are powerless to overcome it. Powerless. Is there anything that paints our need for Christ more clearly than how anxious we are? For after all, if we can't handle, if we can't bear the weight of our daily struggles, what makes us believe, what would convince us to believe that we can handle and bear the weight of our sin for eternity? No, it's these daily weaknesses, daily sicknesses, like maybe I've experienced this weekend, the the daily struggles of am I going to have enough, that remind us that, that we are not ultimately in control. That remind us that ultimately we are too insufficient in and of ourselves to fix it ourselves. And if we try to fix it ourselves, we will drive ourselves crazy. We will run ourselves into the ground. We will live defeated lives that are miserable and overwhelmed. And so Jesus says, not only is it unnecessary, 
but it's ineffective. It's not helpful. Verse 30, he gets to the fatal flaw of our anxiety, I believe. Notice how he finishes verse 30. Having made all of the arguments that we've already talked about, he gets to verse 30 and he says what? Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Those of you whose hearts are racing, you, you have a faith problem. Those of you whose, whose stomachs are always in a knot, there's a, there's a problem of faith in your life. That the, the root of anxiety is faith. Now that's hard. I don't know about you. That's hard. Those are hard words. Those are hard words for me because I know how often I'm anxious. I know how often I'm fearful. I know how much I worry. I know how many sleepless nights I've had. And I haven't faced the struggles of half of you. And so we hear that, we, we, and we've got Jesus, and he's been so gracious, and he's been so kind, and he gets there, and there's this rebuke in the middle of it that says, oh, you of little faith, and immediately our hearts begin to despair again, like, like I thought we were tracking, and now I see it really is in me that Jesus is correcting me and rebuking me in a sense. You see, what Jesus is getting at really is at the heart of it, though. Because if, if the knots in your stomach could speak, here's what they would say. God, I'm just not sure I'm going to have enough. God, I'm just not sure that it's going to be okay. God, I'm just not sure you're as good as you say you are. God, I'm not sure that you love me as much as you say you love me. God, I'm not sure it's worth it the way that you say that it's worth it. God, I'm not sure I can trust you. Isn't that what the knots in our stomach say? Isn't that what our racing heart proclaims? That we have difficulty trusting God? Because if we truly trusted him, if we truly banked our lives on him, we would know that all of this is going to work together for our good and for his glory. If we, if we truly could, could wrap our minds around him, we would know that even our, even our difficulties, even our struggles would be for our good and we could rest in him. Even, if, if, even those things that we, we do without, we know that we would be able to enjoy forever with him and his kingdom. But our heart questions that. Our faith wavers. Our faith is, is always coupled with this, this painful relationship with doubt, Right? Always. This phrase that Jesus uses is common throughout Matthew. Because just like us, his disciples always struggled with faith. This phrase, oh you of little faith, is found in Matthew 8. In Matthew 8, their uh, disciples and Jesus are on a boat and they're in the midst of this, this horrible storm. And the disciples believe the boat's going to capsize and all of them are going to perish. And, and they go and they wake up Jesus and Jesus comes up and he's like, do you forget who's on the boat? Did you forget who's in charge of the storm? Oh, you of little faith. And the storm is quieted. Matthew 14. Jesus, again, the, the disciples are in the boat on, in, in a storm, and Jesus comes walking on the water. They think they see a ghost, but Jesus calls out to them, and, and Peter says, if it's really you, Jesus, let me come to you. And, and Jesus will come on then. Peter gets out of the boat, and he begins walking. Doing what no other man has ever done, defying the laws of gravity until the storms overtake him and overwhelm him. 
And he looks down and he becomes terrified and he begins to sink. And what does Jesus say as he rescues him? Oh, you of little faith. In Matthew 16, Jesus has just taken five loaves of bread and two fish and he feeds thousands, multitudes. Just a few sentences later, a few sentences later, Jesus says, hey, we need to feed everybody. We need to feed the 4,000. Remember, we had fed the 5,000. We need to feed the 4,000. And what does his disciples say? But Jesus, we don't have any food. Jesus, how are we going to feed them? We don't have any bread. We don't have any food. There's not a McDonald's close by. We're broke. And Jesus is like, did you not just see what I did? Did you not just see what I did? Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Are we not just like the disciples? The disciples had seen time and time again God do the miraculous. They had seen Jesus provide divinely, supernaturally. They had watched him as he calmed stormy waters. They had watched him as he walked on waters. They had watched him as he fed thousands of people with utterly nothing. And yet their hearts still doubted his goodness and his faithfulness. Oh, you of little faith. As your heart races this morning. As your heart is as your stomach is filled with knots today, do you remember the faithfulness of God in your life? Have you ever wanted for food and not gotten it? Have you ever went hungry for a long period of time? Has God ever not come through for you? Has God never not fulfilled a promise that he's given to you? Think back through your life, brothers and sisters. See how God has worked. See how God has provided. And remember, as you feel your heart racing, as you, you feel yourself frantically hoping that tomorrow's going to be okay, stop for just a second and remember yesterday. Stop for just a second and remember God's faithfulness yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before. Has God not proven himself faithful? Why would he forsake you tomorrow? Why would he abandon you tomorrow? Why would he stop loving you tomorrow? You can rest. Do not be anxious, brothers and sisters. You can have faith. You can have confidence. You can trust. When we get to verse 33, I think Jesus is really giving us the antidote to our anxiety. He's saying that we shouldn't be focused on all of these things. Notice how he says that? We shouldn't be focused on all of these things. No, rather, we should have a, a singular focus in our lives. We should have a, a, a single-mindedness in our life. And really, that's all we're capable of anyway. We're not, we don't have the capacity to, to worry about all of these mundane things of life. We, we, we only have the capacity to, to focus and to zero in on one thing. And that's what, that's what Jesus' advice is to us. See, verse 33 is a correction of verse 32. In verse 32, Jesus says, hey, you, you know who worries about all of these things? You know who, who worries about the food and who worries about the clothing? The Gentiles, the pagans, the unconverted. They're, they are the ones that worry about all of this stuff because they have to. Their, their father is not God. Their father is not reigning over the universe. Their father is not, is not in control of all of this. They have to worry about this stuff. But you don't. You don't. You focus on one thing. See, that's the difference in verse 33 and verse 32, isn't it? The verse 32, it says the Gentiles worry about all of this. 
They worry about all of these small things. But not my disciples. Verse 33 says what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. They're going to worry about all of this. You just worry about me. You just worry about my kingdom. You just worry about this, this one devotion in your life and what will happen. All of these things will be added unto you. Now, what does that mean exactly? Because that, that's big advice. That's big advice. If he says, seek first my kingdom, seek first my righteousness, and I'll add all this to you, like, I want to know what that means, right? Here's what I think he means. What he's talking about for us is that we are to live our lives in such a way that the, the beat of our heart the aim of our life is solely focused on the building of his kingdom. Is solely focused on the advancement of his kingdom. Uh, you remember we talked about the Lord's Prayer, how, uh, how the other five petitions were all subservient to the first one. How the, everything is aimed at the hallowing of God's name across the globe, right? And that's what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about seeking first his kingdom. Is that we are to seek first to make it the aim of our life to carry out the will of God all across the globe so that his name might be hallowed there. This has implications of evangelism. It has implications of godly living. It has implications of of Worship, all of these things encompassed in what it means to seek first his kingdom. It means that his will is more important than anything else in your life. It means that you have brought all of your life under submission to his kingship. And now you follow after him. You see, nothing is going to thwart the will of God. The, the word of God is clear. Because he is the great constant of the universe, because he is the ruler, the king of the cosmos, there is nothing that will come against what he wants to do and win. He will accomplish his glory, or his will. He will accomplish it for his glory, and he will accomplish it through his people, through his church. So that you will always have what you need to accomplish what he intends for you to accomplish. Always. And if your heart's desire is to accomplish his will, if you are seeking first his kingdom, if that is the passion of your heart and everything in your life, else in your life is subservient to that, everything else in your life is in submission to that, that will always be enough. He will always give you the number of hours in your life that you need to accomplish what he intended for you to accomplish. He will always give you the amount of money that you need in your life to accomplish the will that he has for you to accomplish. He will always give you the number of children. He will always give you the marriage. He will always give you what you need to accomplish what he intends to accomplish through you. And so even though that may play out differently in our lives in the way we want it to, it might, it, the, the story might, might have a different plot line to it than if we were writing it, we can know that if our life is a blank check for him, if we mean what we say, when we say, God, I give you everything. I give you my singleness. I give you my marriage. I give you my money. I give it all to you. I lay it on the table for you. Then we can know, if we mean that, that he will always give us what we need, when we need it, for the advancement of his kingdom and the advancement of his name. Now, what's hard about that is we read chapter 6, and I think we read it unfairly sometimes. We read that sometimes to, to think that, well, then I'm obviously going to get the car, the new car that I've been wanting, that I even maybe need 
or I'm always going to have plenty of food to eat. That's not what Jesus is saying. We all know that there are faithful brothers right now in North Korean work camps that don't have all of those things. They're doing without. We, we already know that, right? We read about missionary doctors that go down to Africa and, and are, are contracting or perhaps even dying from the Ebola virus. But they're fighting it in Christ's name. That, doesn't, that, that, that understanding of Matthew 6 doesn't work. No. How should we understand it? That we will always have whatever we need, even when that means doing without. Even when what you need to accomplish his work is to be deprived of something. Even when what you need to accomplish his work is to be in need of something, to, to go hungry a night, to be locked in prison someday, to be persecuted violently, even martyred someday. Pray God that would raise up some brothers and sisters like that here. That he would give us that gift here. But you will always have what you need to accomplish his will. Always. Which lands this in verse 34. Remember how I said that's where we're going to land? Verse 34, let's read it together again. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What Jesus has been giving to us, what Jesus has been giving to his disciples throughout Matthew chapter 6, is the, or throughout this passage this morning, is the ability to persevere. He is giving us the mechanism which, which we can survive in this life. The mechanism of faith that we can use that will enable us to be able to continue persevering through uh, persecution and suffering and difficulty and defeat. And here's what he says. You're going to have the grace that you need the provisions that you need today to accomplish what you need to accomplish today. And tomorrow, you're going to have the grace that you need and the provisions that you need to accomplish what you need to accomplish tomorrow. So be calm, my friends. Do not be anxious, my children. Today's is good enough. Live today, get through today, and then wake up tomorrow, and get through tomorrow, and wake up the next day, and get through the next day. Always banking on the provision of grace that you will need for that day. This morning, you don't have to be anxious. You don't have to be anxious. Your heavenly Father is God. Your Father is the King. You are more valuable than the birds in the air. You are more valuable than the lilies of the field. And he's going to use you to hallow his name throughout the universe. Let's pray together.